You'll turn in your Bible, Psalm 118. What is God's will for my life? And we have the answer, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See, he already answered the question before he even asked it. In everything give thanks. Psalm 118 verse 1 continues that thought, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His loving kindness, His chesed, His grace is everlasting. And if you want to remain at the center of God's will for your life, then just go to the center of His Word, Psalm 118. This one is right in the middle. In fact, it is the mid-chapter of the entire Bible. It's the half point, if you will. It's set between the shortest and the longest chapters. Psalm 117, you note that, two verses. That's the entire psalm, and it's the shortest chapter in the Bible. Then Psalm 119 is the longest chapter, and right in between, and it's as though God did this on purpose. Right, Brandy? She said this this afternoon, this morning. It's like God intentionally said, shortest chapter, longest chapter, let's stick this in the middle so they'll notice it. So they'll pay attention to it and not miss it. Think about this. 594 chapters precede Psalm 118. 594 chapters come after Psalm 118. 594 plus 594 is 1,188, or 1188. Anyone want to guess what the middle verse of the Bible is? It's Psalm 118, verse 8. You can't get any more middle than verse 8 of Psalm 118 that says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Wouldn't that solve everything in the governments of the world if we believe that? It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. When are we going to get it? Micah chapter 7 verse 5 says, Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. So I'm going to be awfully careful what I share with my wife tonight. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Does that sound familiar? Jesus quoted that in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus was saying this is what's going to happen. It wasn't the purpose of His coming, but it would be somewhat the result of His coming that households would divide. Those who decide to follow, to take refuge in the Lord, to trust in Jesus, and those who would reject Jesus. But Micah 7 verse 7 continues, But as for me... I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What great faith. And again, that's what it takes. Trust and thanksgiving, thanksgiving and trust. Because trusting will make you thankful. And thanksgiving will increase your trust. Try either one and it will have a positive impact on the other. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Take refuge in Him through simple trust that God does know what He's doing. Or we might just say faith. Psalm 118, of all the Savior Psalms we've been looking at, is second only to Psalm 110 in significance. If you didn't hear Psalm 110 on Sunday, it's on the website. Go listen to it. It is by far the most significant psalm I believe David ever wrote. Incredibly important. 
And its import is felt in several other Savior Psalms, as you'll see it is in this one tonight. But Psalm 118, I'd say if I could only pick two, it would be Psalm 110 and Psalm 118. Now, what about Psalm 23? Well, I like that one too, but I only can pick two. Psalm 110, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is quoted 13 times in the New Testament. So it's the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament, second only to Psalm 110. So even scripturally, it is highly significant. But more significant than that, Jesus sang this song. He sang it inspirationally. That is, the Spirit of Christ inspired David to write this psalm. We believe it was David, pretty sure it was David. Because David ordained a song for special occasions and festivals. Listen to this. When the ark was moved up to Jerusalem, up to the Temple Mount, on the day, not that it was moved up, but on the day that they took it from its move and actually set it into the tabernacle of David. First Chronicles 16 verse 7 says, On that day David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. 1 Chronicles 16.34 begins to record that. They sing, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Hey, that's verse 1. So we see a connection in Scripture. And by the way, Scripture is the best commentary for Scripture, right? So we see a connection in Scripture where David assigns this to Asaph. We see the first line of Psalm 118 as quoted as sung by Asaph and his family. And so we believe David is the one who wrote this song. It also appears in the singing and the praise and the thanksgiving of Ezra and the Exiles. Which I think would be a great name for a band. Wouldn't that be great? Ezra and the Exiles. Why has that never been a band? I don't know. Where's John? John, let's do that. Ezra and the Exiles. I'll be Ezra. Ezra and the Exiles. Ezra chapter 3 verse 11 says, They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. So the same idea is there. Jesus inspired this song. Jesus sang it inspirationally, but Jesus also sang this song intentionally, incidentally, or any other I word that implies that he sang it with his mouth as he walked on the planet. It's probably the very last song Jesus sang before he went to the cross. That gives it incredible significance. Jesus sang Psalm 118. Well, how do you know that? It's the last of a collection. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Those psalms are called the Great Hallel, sometimes called the Egyptian Hallel, because they're most often traditionally sung at Pesach, Passover. These are the Passover songs. Now, we're we're told, and, and you can find this, that they were probably sung, the great Hallel songs, at the three major feasts that were celebrated in Jerusalem that everybody was required to go up to, but especially at Passover and their songs of going up. And of the great Hallel, Psalm 118 concludes the singing. And on Passover, they would begin early in the evening with Psalm 113. They would end the evening with Psalm 118. And Matthew 26, verse 30 says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What hymn? I believe Psalm 118. And you could call it a Christ hymn. I mean, it's perfect. Not because Jesus sang it, but because He lived it. That this psalm is an expression 
of Jesus going up. It's a stanza by stanza, step by step progression on a profound pilgrimage. If you just read it through, and we're going to do this tonight. But you discover along about verse 5, suddenly a single worshiper emerges. And this worshiper is making his way up to Jerusalem and the temple. Throughout the psalm, you see him progressing as he goes. He ends up at the very horns of the altar itself. And then he ends the song exactly how he began. His loving kindness is everlasting. And this is the psalm that is sung of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So with all that in mind, we're going to walk it through tonight step by step. We're going to go up with Jesus. We're going to go up with the worshiper, up to the temple, up to the altar itself. Step one, if you're taking notes, I'll give these to you. Step one is grace. Grace. We begin with grace. Verse one, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. You know, those first four verses are call and response. So let's do it. I will read the first line of each verse and you get to respond. His loving kindness is everlasting. And if we respond quietly, we're going to do it over and over until you get it. (laughs) Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Oh, let Israel say. Oh, let the house of Aaron say. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say. Amen. His loving kindness, His grace. This is a line I believe we will sing in heaven. Because we'll be in the everlasting. And we'll know firsthand more than we do now. Oh, we, we get a concept of grace. We grasp grace as much as humanly possible. I don't think we have a clue. When we get to heaven and understand what grace really meant and what it really means, we will say, His loving kindness, His chesed is everlasting. His grace, we will be so blown away, I believe we'll say it over and over, praising the Lord, absolutely focused on Jesus, not hungry, not wanting to take a break, not wanting another cup of coffee, just worship, worship, worship. And if that sounds boring to anyone, trust me. There won't be a single person in heaven yawning. No, His grace is everlasting. Note verse 1 is is the person. It's to the person. That is, the person who gives thanks to the Lord. That's anyone who accepts the trusting imperative call to give thanks. And each one of these are an imperative in the Hebrew. That means this is a command to give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is everlasting. So, verse 1 is the person, anyone. Verse 2 is the people, in this case, Israel. Verse 3 are the priests. The house of Aaron, the high priesthood. And then verse 4, I'd call the pious. The pious. That is, those who genuinely revere the Lord Not the pretentiously pious, but those who are truly pious, who genuinely fear the Lord. They revere Him with a a holy love. So in these four verses, you get the person, you get the people, the priests, and the pious. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you belong to, or what position you hold, or how holy you might honestly be. And I can tell you right now, some of you in here tonight are more holy than I am. I'll give you that. 
It doesn't matter who you are in this beautiful list of person, people, priests, and pious. All will sing. His grace is everlasting. That is in heaven. There's not going to be a single voice singing, Give thanks to the me, for I am good. It's give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. He's the only one who's good. He's the only reason we'll be there. And so we will sing and sing and sing of His grace. But now, verse 5, suddenly we hear, we recognize the voice of the Savior. Because He said, my sheep hear me. They know my voice. In verse 5, it's Jesus talking. From distress I called upon the Lord. And the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. From distress, he says. Psalmic picture, the word distress, is one of being in a tight spot. Dire straits. A very narrow position. A no way out, grim predicament. Distress in the Hebrew means you're boxed in. And there's no way of escape. Distress. I mean, it feels that way, doesn't it? Emotionally. Doesn't distress make you feel like you're fixed in an affliction? There's no way out. Like you're stuck in a situation. How can you be relieved of this? And Jesus was distressed. Mark 14, verse 32 says, They came to a place named Gethsemane. Jot that down. We've just moved from grace to step two, Gethsemane. Gethsemane. They came to Gethsemane and He said to His disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. Mark 14, 33, And He took with Him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. I think I've shared before, that word troubled in the Greek, it's a horse word. It's what a horse does when it's, when it's terrorized or frightened or nervous. It, it does that shaking. The whole body of the horse will shake. And that's a troubled horse. And that word would be used to describe that in the Greek. Jesus was distressed. He was shaking in Gethsemane. He was in a tight spot. Think about the position of Jesus. If if you've ever been in narrow straits, if you've ever been feeling like there's no way out of the situation I've gotten myself into or, or, or or I've landed in, that Jesus in the garden, first of all, the wrath of God loomed large before Him. The wrath of God for your sin and for mine. He faced that in the garden. Faced it down. Oh, Father, let this cup pass from me, He said. The cup being the cup of the wrath of God. And he had to stare that down. He had a decision to make. Do I drink this cup? The Bible tells us he drank it to the dregs. And so he faced that. And then at the same time, the betrayer was coming. Along with the chief priests. And John 18 verse 3 tells us they were accompanied by a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort. Do you know what a cohort? I mean, it's a specific word. And John uses it twice to describe the battalion of Roman soldiers who came with the chief priest to arrest Jesus in the garden. He was such a threat to them. A cohort is 600 men. If you've ever visited the Garden of Gethsemane, you know it's not a big garden. It's there on the side, the lower half actually of the, of the Mount of Olives, just across the Kedron Valley from the Temple Mount. And to go into the garden, I mean, it's just not that big a space. 600 men would fill the hillside. Jesus was boxed 
in. In a tight spot, absolutely distressed. And it makes me think, man, when he went into the garden, he had to know that's where they would find him. He had to know that's where Judas was going to come, where the betrayal would take place. And yet he entered the garden. Why? What did he do there to prepare for this distress, to prepare for being boxed in? Well, Psalm 109 tells us, remember this from last Wednesday? In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I pray. I what? I pray. Hey, they're against me, but I pray. They're on the attack, but I pray. They're accusing, they're betraying, but I pray. That's the best response. Anybody can have. And that's Jesus' response. He goes into the garden knowing he'll be arrested, but to pray. And there he prays to the Father. He went a little beyond them. Matthew 26, 39. Fell on his face and prayed. Luke tells us he suffered from hematidrosis, which is the capillaries expanding under such great stress and, and the blood vessels bursting. And the, Luke says his sweat became as great drops of blood. And in hematidrosis, physicians will tell you, that happens when someone is so stressed, they're right on the verge of dying. In fact, people usually do die if they get to that point. And Jesus, sweating blood, prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That is how you pray in distress. That's the picture of it right there. You're stressed out. You're worried. You're boxed in. You're in a tight spot. What do you say? Lord, get me out of here. That's what I want to say. A better prayer is, Lord, Lord, deliver me, yet as you will. Do as you will. I might be in the tight spot because that's right where God wants me. I might be in the tight spot because (laughs) Rick needs a little chastening. Or discipline. I've learned that over the years when things are not going well, to stop and say, Lord, is this you? Is there something I need to learn from this? Is there something I'm missing here? Search my heart. And I have found at times that difficulties that have hit me were because I needed some discipline from my loving Father. Other times, maybe you're in a tight spot because someone needs to watch the grace and mercy and deliverance of the Lord in your life. So rather than praying, get me out, pray, your will be done. Your will be done, Lord. And note this in verse 5. It says, from distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. I'm in a tight spot. What does He do? Puts me in a large place. Sets me free. Gives me liberty. Releases me, not just to another tight spot. It's not out of the frying pan and into the fire with the Lord. He takes me out and puts me in a large place. But note this, note this, get this. It's not that He sets me in a large place. If you see that the words are italicized there, the Lord answered me and set me and set me is not in the Hebrew. The literal translation is, the Lord answered me in a large place. I'm not in a large place. I'm in distress. I'm in a tight spot. So what does this mean? It means the Lord is in a large place. Yeah. So you may be in a tight spot, but God never is. You may be stuck. He's not. 
The deliverer is always free to do whatever he wants to do and to respond however he needs to respond. He is never in a tight space, even if I am. So he hears and he responds from a large place. Ever been to heaven? He responds right out of eternity with all... I said this on Sunday. He's got all the time in the world. He can do anything. He can do it perfectly at just the right time. He responds from a large place. So again, you may feel confined. He's not. God is not stuck. Psalm 18, 19 says, He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Now, don't twist that, because I know someone's going to go home and go, well, that's why He didn't rescue me, because He doesn't delight in me. No. He delights in you. He loves you. He will rescue you from His large place in the right time. The right season. The right moment. But I think the right moment is right now. Yeah, but I'm in the tight spot. How can I know what the right moment is? I can't even move my elbows. I'm in such distress. He's in the large place. Which is why my response to Him is just trust Him. Trust Him. And note this, eventually He's going to bring us all to His large space. It's a big, big house. With lots and lots of rooms. Big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football, right? It's a great big house. It's my father's house. That's an old audio adrenaline song. I love that song. I still groove to it every now and then, driving down the road. That's what you do. You pray in distress in the tight spot to the Lord who is in the large place, and He will rescue, and He will bring us. Ultimately, He's going to bring us to the largest place of all, right into eternity. That's going to be awesome. But in the confines of Gethsemane, let's go back there, Jesus is completely surrounded. And one of the most upsetting life situations you can possibly endure is when someone's coming at you. Be it friend or foe. When the betrayer is gunning for you. When a friend is going behind your back. When an enemy is doing everything they can to undermine you. And by the way, in the case of Christ, it was both friend and foe who came at him. Look at verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look on those who hate me. And it's not I will look with satisfaction. With satisfaction is italicized. It is not in the Hebrew. The technical, literal translation is, Therefore, I will look on those who hate me. With satisfaction might imply a little bit of smugness. <laughs> I'll look on those who hate me. No, it's I will look on those. I, I will look without fear. You can hate me. Okay? You can be viciously attacking me. I can look without fear, with, with confidence, I will look on those who hate me. Why? Isaiah 51.12 says, I, even I, am He who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? And the Son of Man who is made like grass. How is it that Jesus... Think about Jesus in the garden. Think about how composed 
and called after the distress. I mean, the distress was intense. After the distressing prayer, Luke tells us angels came and ministered to him. And then he stands up, and here comes Judas. And here come the Romans, and here come the chief priests. It's, it's all together, ready to take him out. And read John 18 and 19 sometime. Just read through them and ask yourself, how cool is Jesus? And I don't mean like cool like day. I mean, how cool is he and composed in his answers and his responses? In fact, Jesus is so self-composed that when they first say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, they fall down. Now, I want to watch that video. I want to check out that Blu-ray in heaven or that heaven ray, whatever it's going to be. I want to watch that platform and I want to see Jesus say, I am, and 600 Romans hit the deck. And through the whole thing, they stand up and Jesus says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I told you, I am. And and he's just in control of the whole situation. I think that's why John waited 60 years to write his gospel, to show Jesus in absolute control. It's everything that John recalled. It's what the Spirit inspired him to write. Jesus was composed in the garden. He was grace under pressure. Why? Well, because the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Even before the cross composed, before the resurrection composed, before the ascension, he acted as if he was already in a large place. That's a great thing about following Jesus. When you're in a tight spot, you realize it's temporary, and in Jesus, technically, you're already in a large place because you're already saved. You're already going home. You already have eternity laid out before you. Why? Well, because His loving kindness is everlasting. And so even in that tight spot, you can act as though you're in a large place, which Jesus does. Now, watch this. The Hebrew pastor quotes verse 6 in a very curious way. In fact, if I didn't know better, I think he was taking this verse way out of context. Because of the way he applies it. Note the verse again. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Now watch this. Listen to the context. I'll start reading. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 5. You just get there and then think about this with me. The Hebrew pastor says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's Deuteronomy 31. So that we may confidently say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Psalm 118, verse 6. Why is that out of context? Well, the context of Psalm 118 is a man in great distress. I am in distress. I called upon the Lord. A man being stared down by those who hate him. It's Jesus in the garden. And you'll see this even more clearly as we continue in Psalm 118. So you go from Jesus in the garden, Psalm 118, verse 6, to Hebrews 13, verse 6, and he's talking about money? Jesus... (laughs) Jesus is dealing with hard, cold hearts, not cold, hard cash. So why is the Hebrew pastor tying in 
to this money situation. And, and I'll tell you, part of it, part of it is very simply because some of the greatest distress in our lives is financial. Some of our biggest worry is with our provision, with making sure that we can make it to the next paycheck or pay those bills or, or, or the doctor bill comes in unexpectedly or the car has a repair and you don't have the money for it and people will just freak out and, and become distressed. Money is perhaps one of the, if not, the, I don't know, is it the greatest cause of distress? I know it causes an awful lot of distress. How do you know that? Because if it didn't, we'd give a lot more. <laughs> money worries us. And we panic over provision. So you can say, yeah, well, so the Hebrew writer's using it in terms of distress. There's more to it than that. Understand, if that's the problem for you, if if money is a distress for you, that the Lord is for you. Read Matthew 6. I've advised this so many times over the years. Go to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, consider the lilies. Consider the birds of the air. Where Jesus says, you seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, your Father knows you need these things. Look, I know my children need clothing. I know they need a roof. I know they need food. I'm not giving them much more than that, but I'll do that much. (laughs) No, I know my kids' needs. I'm going to meet their needs. I'm their dad. That's what I do. Your Father knows what you need. Why do we ever panic? Why do we, when I think about the hours that I lost in my life to distress over money, God has your best in mind. Now and eternally, He is working to get you out of the tight spot and into the large place. But that's not why the Hebrew pastor shared what he shared. That's not the connection. It's much deeper than that. Just flipping back to Psalm 118, I'm going to go back to Hebrews 13, but just listen to this. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look on those who hate me. And Jesus looked on one who hated him in the garden. Who was that? Judas. What was the singular biggest issue of sin in Judas's life according to the Bible? Money. It was money. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. John tells us he was pilfering the money bags through the entire three and a half years of ministry. John tells us Judas was upset, angry, when when the vial, when Mary broke the vial of perfume in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and poured it on Jesus. Jesus said to anoint him for his burial, which I'm sure freaked out some of the guys, but Judas was like, what a waste. We could have sold this at least and made some money off of it. Money, money, money. And the Hebrew pastor says, make sure your character is free from the love of money. So what we find is the pastor was using it absolutely in context. Dialing in to the hater in the garden, Judas Iscariot. Wow. Jesus was able to look into the eyes of the hater and remember this, say, friend, do what you have come to do. The last thing he called Judas was friend. That still just, it blows my mind. And Jesus willingly took the next step out of Gethsemane. Verse 8, back in Psalm 118, says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord to trust in princes or in Jesus' case, procurators. They took him up before the law. Brought him before the most powerful man in Judea, or at least he thought he was, Pontius Pilate. And it is better to trust in man than to trust in princes or rulers or judges or governors or presidents. There's an obvious one for you. And it doesn't matter if you're a Trump supporter or a never-Trumper. You don't put your trust in a man. You look at the policies. Support biblical policies. But you don't put your trust in a person to be your Savior. There's no such thing. There's only one Savior. And Jesus has that position filled quite nicely. You trust in the Lord. You don't trust in princes or procurators. John 19.13 tells us that Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Gabbatha, step number three. We come now out of Gethsemane and we go to the pavement. Gabbatha, G-A-B-B-A-T-H-A. John 19.13. By the way, interesting, Gabbatha. That word is used twice in the Bible, just two times. One in the New Testament, John 19, verse 13, and once in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 16. And it's an interesting occasion because at that time, King Ahaz had just gotten back from visiting Damascus. He went to go see the king of Assyria there in Damascus, Tiglath-Pileser, or I like to call him Tigger. That was for you, Deb. Just for you. He went to see Tigger. So he comes back from visiting this king, and he liked the pagan design of Tigger's altar better than the Lord's. So in 2 Kings 16, verse 17, King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the labor from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen which were under it and put it on a pavement of stone. He put it on Gabbatha. He reworked the design scheme of God's holy furniture. Taking the bronze labor and changing God's prescription for how it was to be built. Because Ahaz thought, I kind of like the pagan version better. Glad none of us ever do that in our lives. Choose the pagan replica over the real thing. But that's what Ahaz did, and he set it on the pavement. 700 years later, same place became Pilate's pavement of injustice as Jesus was brought to Gabbatha. Didn't Pilate know he was innocent? I mean, think about the proof that was all around. He tried to come, he kept coming out saying, I don't find any guilt in this man. Not to mention the fact that Pilate's wife warned him, his his (laughs) co-pilot. She warned him against this guy. Don't, Don't have anything to do with Jesus. He washed his hands and feet and handed him over to be crucified. Why did Pilate do it? Why didn't he let Jesus go? Because politics threw shade over the truth. And it often does. I don't have a stomach for politics. I really don't. I'm not talking even about Democrat, Republican, primaries, presidential campaigns, all that stuff. I I find that interesting. I'm talking about in relationships. I don't have a stomach for politics. And I don't think we're supposed to. Politics are when I'm using you to get what I want. 
rather than serving you as a brother or a sister, rather than loving you because Christ loved you first. And it's not easy because we all contend to do it. I have played politics with the best of them. I often pray, God, don't let me play that game. Alert me when I'm beginning to be a politician rather than a pastor. A Pilate, man, he was a politician. And so, John 19, verse 10, Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Why would Jesus say that? Because it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Your authority, Pilate, is God-given. So I trust the Lord. He happens to be on a higher pay scale than you are. Verses 8 and 9 and the step of Gavatha remind us that our only secure refuge is in the Lord. Regardless of situation, life condition, your best and only sure refuge is in the Lord. Step 4. Golgotha. From Gethsemane to Gavatha to Golgotha, verse 10. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They have surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. He began saying, all the nations surrounded me. Listen, in Jerusalem, on Passover, the weekend of Jesus' death, the place was packed out with Jews and and proselytes for Pesach. They were all there gathered, people from all the different nations. There was a multinational representation in Jerusalem around Jesus at the time of the crucifixion. So very literally, all the nations surrounded me He would say at the cross. It's perfect. Because Jesus said in John 12, 32, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. I have to tell you something here, and no one really likes to hear this. It's a little uncomfortable. It's a little embarrassing. It's a little shocking. But on the cross of Calvary, Jesus was most likely naked. And I don't mean just wearing a little loincloth. No, he was completely naked. Well, how how do you know that? John 19, verse 23, just listen to this. The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts. A part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven as one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, let's cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And therefore the soldiers did these things. Listen, the tunic was Jesus' undergarment. And they were gambling over the tunic. He had nothing as he hung up on the cross of Calvary. Why are you taking us to that place, Rick? Because, listen, how do you know when various cultures are represented in the world? How can you tell if a bunch of people from different nationalities, different locations are present? I'll tell you, we were in the dining hall in Jerusalem. I walked down for breakfast. This was, I think, the first first trip we took as a, as a church in the Prima Kings Hotel. And I walk into the dining hall, and it blew me away. The colors alone. What do you mean? I mean the clothing. 
There was a whole big group there from Nigeria. There was another group there from the Philippines. There were some Americans, I mean, from people from all over the world were there to visit the Holy Land. And I immediately knew, because of all the different kinds of clothing they were wearing, guess what? Without clothes on the cross, Jesus transcended culture. Jesus identified Himself with all human sinners. Everyone. There was nothing to set Him apart as different or unique. He was human on the cross, dying for humans. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. All nations surrounded me and Jesus Christ died for all nations. The crucifixion itself was the most culturally diverse action in all history. One man dying for all people. The crucifixion, think of it this way, it cut across every tribe, tongue, and nation. It cut to the heart of humanity's greatest need, and that was forgiveness of sin. And notice that in verses 10, 11, and 12, three times it says, In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. And that doesn't sound like Jesus on the cross. Does it? I I seem to recall Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not, in the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. The word cut them off, the phrase there, is moil. Moil. If you know anything about Jewish culture, you know what I'm saying. A moil in Jewish culture is a rabbi who performs circumcision. The word moil in the Hebrew, except for these three verses, every other time in the Hebrew Scriptures the word moil is used, it's translated circumcise. Read it that way. In the name of the Lord, I will surely circumcise them. That's a whole different meaning. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 says circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds Paul said in Romans 2 verse 28 he is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit not by the letter and His praise is not from men but from God. And the cross will either circumcise hearts or cut them off. The cross is the divider of history and it is the divider of humanity. Those who are circumcised of heart and made righteous and holy. Those who are born again through the circumcision of the crucifixion and those who are cut off through the rejection of Jesus' sacrifice. And whether it's circumcision unto salvation or circumcision unto being literally cut off. Remember what Paul said to the Judaizers, to those who were trying to get Christians to go back to follow the law? Paul said, I wish they would go all the way and not just circumcise, I wish they would just finish the job. Sorry to be graphic, but Paul was the one who wrote it. It's one or the other and it is all up to the individual sinner to decide. 
circumcision of the heart or being cut off. Verse 12 also says, they surrounded me like bees. That would imply sharp, stinging mockery. And of course that happened there at Calvary. But you know what happens to a bee after it stings? It dies. It dies pretty quickly. Thorns, he says. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. And if you ever have lit thorns on fire, they flame up very quickly and they turn to ash almost immediately. So we have this picture of this whole thing being shut down by the very sacrifice of Jesus. Oh, they were mocking Him. They were attacking Him. They were going at Him. But after a while on the cross, as He humbly, quietly, with composure, even in His dying, hung there, you tend to kind of see in the Gospels that the attacks are dying down. It's not working. The haters and the mockers and the scorners aren't getting any response like bees that sting and die, like flames of a thorn that that burn and burn out. But I find this reference to fiery thorns intriguing. Because if we see Jesus at Golgotha, if we see Jesus on the cross, have you ever, don't go home and try this, but have you ever had a needle or a sharp object stuck in your forehead or your skull? The nerve endings give the sensation of fire. It's like your head is on fire. Rick, you speak as if you know. I'm not going to tell that story. (laughs) But it is a fiery burning sensation. Like the crown of thorns. Can you even imagine how that felt? Having that pressed down on his skull. But again, the way in which Jesus wore the crown of thorns caused the bees to die out, caused the thorns to flame out quickly because even the enemies and haters and mockers shut down when they saw Jesus' response. Isaiah 53 verse 7 prophesied He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. Which, by the way, sheep are normally not silent before the shearers. Usually sheep are having a bad time of it. (laughs) This would be a unique sheep who is actually silent when all this is going on. And Isaiah says, so he did not open his mouth. And Peter confirms that's exactly what happened. Yeah, he was completely silent. Which tells us something else about when we're in distress and when we're under attack and when someone's coming at you, best response is none. The moment you start to fight, you lose. The moment you start to defend, you fail. Just just don't. Don't give back what's being given. Give love. Give grace. Or give silence if that's the best that you can do. And it will shut up the bees. (laughs) Verse 13. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, or literally so that I fell. And it speaks of dying. You pushed me violently. The word pushed is literally thrust. You thrust me violently as if with a Roman spear, perhaps. And that Roman spear went into his side, and as the Roman pulled it out, blood and water came out together, signifying a burst heart, signifying Jesus was absolutely dead. John confirms that, because John wants to make sure that we know, on the cross, it was verified Jesus was dead. Proven absolutely. Well then, how can he say, but the Lord helped me? 
You thrust me violently so that I fell, but the Lord helped me, he says. And verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my Yeshua. He has become my salvation. The Lord helped me. My friends, we've just come to step five, the gospel. The gospel. Moving off the cross at Golgotha and even beyond the grave, we step up to the gospel. The Lord helped me. Verse 15, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Why? The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord, does that sound familiar? Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The right hand of the Lord is Jesus Christ. Speaks of his authority. Speaks of him positionally. And verse 7 says, or 17, I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. Listen, he died. Yes, he died in the flesh. But not in the spirit. His spirit man did not die. And yet, note this after his death and his burial and his resurrection. What did Jesus do? Do you remember what he did? I'm talking immediately. Day of his resurrection. If I resurrected on a Sunday, having been dead all weekend, I think I'd take the day off. I think I might go out to the Galilee, maybe do a little fishing. Might go visit mom. Hey, I'm back. Can you fix my favorite meal? Because I need to chill a little bit here. I'll ramp back up to ministry later in the week. But come on, I just came out of the grave this morning. What did Jesus do? Verse 17, tell of the works of the Lord. He immediately starts talking about it. How do you know? Check this out. Luke chapter 24, verse 25. You can just listen. I'll read it to you. On the road to Emmaus, he begins talking to these men who are trying to figure out what had happened to the crucified Jesus. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That is a Bible study I would love to sit in. I was awake at four o'clock this morning. Just being wide awake. Had to be up at six. Tried to go back to sleep, didn't work, so I'm laying there. I'm talking to the Lord. First a little frustrated, Lord, can't you do something about this? I'm in a tight spot, you know, between the, the covers and my pillow, and I really would like to go back to sleep. Help me, Lord. And so, you know, came to work today, ended up just staying awake. So I've been up since four. And I got home this afternoon, had, you know, staff today, our staff meeting, and did got my work done and got everything finished, got home. And I walked in the house, and, and I think I've told you, this summer I'm living in Crazy Town. And I walk in, and Crazy Town's even crazier, because now on top of everything else, we decided we'd re-carpet some rooms, so that's a lot of fun. So furniture's everywhere, and Cheryl decided this morning after I left that, hey, we're going to re-carpet this room, let's paint it. So she's going to paint flying, and grandkids are underfoot, and I walk into this... <laughs> homestead and I said Cheryl I gotta take a nap 
And I went into the bedroom and I just conked out. I can't imagine walking out of the grave and doing a full-blown Bible study. Well, Rick, you're doing one tonight. I took a nap. I had some tea and, and a sandwich. I'm better now. You know, Jesus just goes right at it. Concerning himself, he explained everything in all the scriptures, and that's not all. Then the two men on the road to Emmaus, they have, they break bread with Jesus, they realize it's Jesus, he vanishes, they hot foot it back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles, and when they get to the upper room and meet with the guys there, they're telling them, look, Jesus came, and boom, there he is. What does he do? Luke 24, 44. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, Psalm 118, Psalm 110, Psalm 23, 24, 25. Think it through, Psalm 22. All the things written about me must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That was Sunday night of Resurrection Day. And Jesus is now on His second major through the Bible study. Why? Because I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. He told of the works of the Lord and now it's our turn. And it's your turn if you know the Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This is still the gospel. Now, wait a minute. You might say, hang on. I see where you're going with this Jesus in Psalm 118 thing, but the Lord has disciplined me severely. Would Jesus say that? Absolutely. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening or discipline for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Yes, He was disciplined on the cross. Yes, He was punished. Jesus was punished like no man or woman has ever known punishment. He severely disciplined me. But He has not given me over to death. And I said a moment ago, yes, He died a physical death, but God did not give Him over to spiritual death. Peter confirms this, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's the Gospel. The Gospel, the Gospel. Do you believe the Gospel? Amen. Good answer. Have you received the gospel? Can you articulate it? I've asked this before, so I've given you a little time to practice. So we're going to set the mic up right here. And one by one, I'm going to have you come up and tell the gospel. Which is great if you're the last person to go. No one wants to be first. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, For I delivered you as of first importance, here it is, the gospel, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The Gospel. 
There it is. Now I know someone's going, all right, okay, I think I got that. I think I got it this time. Christ died, he was buried, he resurrected. I can remember that. Three points. Death, burial, resurrection. That's the gospel. I got it down. No, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. The gospel message we take to the world is not three steps. It's not something you can measure like that. It's not four spiritual laws. And I know some of you may have been saved following the four spiritual laws. Praise the Lord. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not five-point Calvinism. The gospel is not 12 steps to recovery. The gospel is Jesus Christ. It's who He is and what He did. It's the whole package. So when you're giving the gospel to someone, you're not saying, listen, I need you to believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. No, what you're saying is, can I tell you about Jesus? Can, you tell, can I tell you what He's done in me and to me and through me? Can I tell you why I love Him so much? And yes, I can tell you about the crucifixion. I can explain to you the resurrection. I can share the truth that He ascended and He's coming back. I can talk about all that. But the point is not to get several points. The point is always to talk about Jesus, who by grace went to Gethsemane and then to Gabbatha and then to Golgotha for the gospel of our salvation. And step six brings us right up to the gates. Not Josh and Melinda. The gates. Watch this. Verse 18. Verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. Now, these two verses are great. Because all of a sudden, coming up out of, again, Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha, and the Gospel, and He's saved, and we see Jesus now proclaiming that. We're called to do the same. He's alive. And the next thing we see are the gates. Talk about a large place. Read Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47 and check out the Millennial Temple. The Millennial Temple complex is overwhelming. It's breathtaking. It's massive. It's raised up. It's Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. And and if you read through that section of Ezekiel, there are all kinds of gates that are talked about. In and out and and into different rooms and and different areas on the temple complex. It's, It's wonderful. But for all the many gates described, the psalm tells us very clearly there's one gate by which we get in. There is only one gate, one way into the kingdom. Note that in verse 19 he says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. And verse 20 he says, This is the gate of the Lord. There's a contrast going on there, and it's intentional. Because oftentimes people will look to Jesus, and, and even when we're starting to come to faith, we say, hey, hey, open the gates. Show me the many ways to be saved. And the answer is always the same. There aren't many. There's one. There is only one gate. The gate of righteousness. It's the only way in. And what we're shown here are kind of a challenge, counter-challenge. Open to me the gates. There's only one gate. It's kind of like Psalm 24, verses 7 and 8. Same idea, a challenge and a counter-challenge. Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And the response is, who is the King of glory? The Lord. 
strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So we read, open to me the gates of of righteousness. And verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The gate of the Lord. Verse 19, Jesus is speaking. Open to me the gate, because Jesus can go in and out any gate He so well pleases. Every gate is open to Jesus. But verse 20 is in reality for us the only way in. And the only way in is righteousness. And the implication is simple. Jesus is the gate through whom and by whom we are made righteous. You can only get in through Him. John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. John 10, verse 9. I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters through Me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. You want to get into the kingdom? You go through Jesus. There's only one way in, one way to righteousness, and that through Jesus Christ. And here at the gate, the singular gate, we come to the last step of the final Hallel Psalm, which encapsulates the whole thing. Step seven, glory. Step seven, glory. All right, we got to move. No, we don't. No, we don't. I was told Sunday morning, by the way, had a sister come up to me afterwards. She said, Pastor Rick, she said, don't apologize for going long. She said, if people want short sermons, they can go anywhere. I said, you know, that's not a good thing to say to me. Especially because I knew we're staring down Psalm 118. I could be here another hour and a half. Easy. The glory. Glory. Step seven is glory. Follow this through with me. Verse, where were we? The gate. I shall give thanks to you. Verse 21. For you have answered me. And you have become my salvation. And there it is. You have become my Yeshua. You are my salvation. Which is why I say the gospel is Jesus. Because He is the salvation. Not the things. Not the steps. Not the stages. Not the memorization. The Lord. He is my salvation. He has become for me my salvation. And verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner. This is from the Lord. Literally, if your Bible says this is the Lord's doing, it's this is from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. A stone from the Lord. A stone from the Lord. Jesus quoted this of Himself. In Matthew 21, in Mark 12, in Luke 20, all of those chapters, Jesus refers right to Psalm 118 and says, that's me. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, the capstone, if you will, which is why I say it encapsulates the whole psalm. (laughs) He has become that cornerstone. Peter and John preached this verse out of Psalm 118. I mean, this blows my mind. Peter and John preached it to the Sanhedrin, to the high Jewish council with Annas and Caiaphas present. Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas, the the previous high priest, whose name, I don't always pronounce Annas, but I'll try to tonight. These two, Annas was the previous high priest, Caiaphas, and they're there. They're the ones who, who called for the crucifixion. 
And Peter and John are now standing before these two men who saw to the death of Jesus. And they're preaching Acts chapter 4, verse 11. He's the stone by which, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118. And they're like, we know Psalm 118. And I think Peter would say, I don't think you do. And Peter says there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. The New Testament quotes of this particular verse makes it absolutely sure and clear this psalm is all about Jesus. This is Jesus, step by step by step. And here is the chief cornerstone, the corner of the whole building. It's just amazing to me. Peter, by the way, also included a quote from this in, uh, in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, he quotes Psalm 118. Paul takes Psalm 118 and actually, in a cool way, applies it to the church. Saying he's the chief cornerstone of the temple, which is a picture of the church. We are the church. We are the temple of God, and Jesus is Himself the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation of the whole thing. Make no mistake, Psalm 118 is all about Jesus Christ. And even old Jacob knew it. Jacob on his deathbed, calling his boys around, begins to give the blessing to each one. I'm looking forward to getting there, Lord willing, Genesis 49. And in Genesis 49, verse 24, Jacob says, From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Wow. Jacob called him the stone of Israel long before any temple was in view. He is the chief cornerstone. Isaiah also made that inspired connection. Isaiah 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now that's interesting, because Isaiah wrote that when the first temple had already been constructed. He says, I'm laying in Zion. This is a future tense thing. Something's coming. I'm going to lay a cornerstone. And the listeners might have gone, well, Isaiah, there's already a cornerstone laid in Zion. It's already a temple. What are, you, what are you talking about? Behold, I am doing this thing. This chief cornerstone is coming. By the way, have you heard the story of the cornerstone? Are you aware of this? Maybe you've heard this before, but according to ancient rabbinical tradition, this is not Christian tradition, this is a tradition of the old rabbis. And they tell the story that while Solomon's temple was being built, a stone was sent up to the temple mount from the quarry. And the builders are trying to look at the blueprints and plans, and they can't figure out what this stone is. It was a huge stone, 350 tons. Big stone. Or as I say at home, a big mama-jama stone. Big. And, and it's there, and they're looking at it going, I don't really know what that's for. And so the story goes that they pushed it off down into, down into a gully. Well, then it came time to put in the cornerstone and they're all looking around for the cornerstone. No one knows where it is. Someone suggests, uh oh, (laughs) do you think it's that stone that we pushed down in the gully? And they go down and they get it, somehow manage to get it back up on the temple mount and it slides in perfectly. The stone the builders rejected. 
And I don't know if that story was written to kind of follow along or maybe to teach Psalm 118 or, or if it's true. But I do know this much. Stones for the temple were cut and shaped in a quarry just to the north of the Temple Mount, a place that would later be called Golgotha. The chief cornerstone. Jesus was crucified at the place the cornerstone came from. The Bible's stunning. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Did you never read the Scriptures? He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to those who should know. Did you never read the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118.22 Therefore I say to you, Jesus making application here, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. By the way, by the way, I still believe that applies. Not that you could lose the kingdom, but I'll tell you what, if we don't produce the fruit of it, we will lose the opportunity to produce fruit. He will remove the lampstand if we are unfruitful for the kingdom. He's not going to waste his time with people who are not fruitful. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that his grace isn't everlasting. Praise God, that's why we're saved. Not by our works, but by his grace. But if you want to be a vibrant, if we want to be a a fruitful fellowship, let's get at it. Let's bear fruit for the Lord. Let's tell him about Jesus. And Jesus says it will be taken away from you, speaking to the the Jewish leaders and given to a people producing the fruit. And then he says this, listen closely, he who falls on this stone, the chief cornerstone, Jesus, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. He who falls on the stone will be broken. That indicates Israel. Unquestionably, because Israel fell on the stone of Messiah. Israel fell on the stone of Jesus and Israel was broken. Isaiah said it would happen. Isaiah 8.14 He shall become a sanctuary, but to both houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them and then they will fall and be broken. So he who falls over this stone, who falls on the stone, Jesus says, will be broken. And it wasn't even 40 years after his death that Israel was broken. A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Israel broken. What about the other part? Jesus says, yeah, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. That implicates the nations of the world unquestionably read, I don't have time to go into it tonight, but Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and read Daniel's interpretation of the dream, which is true and accurate, that basically a stone, not cut from human hands, or with human hands, so a, a holy stone, the chief cornerstone, smashes into this statue that represents all the nations, and blows it up, decimates it, pulverizes it to dust. The stone. Jesus the Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 says, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
So the glory. Remember I said the step is the step of glory because the glory of Israel was broken. The glory of the nations of the world pulverized. And it all goes to the glory of God. Psalm 118, where are we? Verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I love that verse because that was a song that was sung as the exit music for my wedding. This is the day that the Lord has made. Love it. Verse 25, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Save, we pray. Or in the Hebrew, Hosanna. Hosanna. They shout, and they shouted, Hosanna. When did they shout that? As Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, right? Uh Uh-oh, then we're a little out of order in the psalm because that really should have come before He died. Right? If the psalmist was accurate, save us, we beseech you, Hosanna, and cries and shouts of joy like that preceded Jesus coming in. So a week before, so much of what we've already covered, hold that thought. Verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Okay, yeah, same day, right? Hosanna, they shouted. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all four Gospels record the triumphal entry of Jesus. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12. They all confirm as He came in and they were putting down palm fronds and they were singing and shouting, Hosanna on the one hand and blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord on the other hand. And you might say, okay, so that was prophetically fulfilled when Jesus came into Jerusalem at the beginning of the final week. So we're a little out of order, but it's still prophecy. It's cool. Hang on. Hang on. Because... That's only partial fulfillment. What we read, the cries of, do save, we beseech you, Hosanna, Hosanna, and then blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, has a future fulfillment. How do you know? Staying in the flow, it should speak of Jesus in His second coming, not in His first coming. Matthew chapter 23, and I'll read it to you quickly. After the, this, this is now further into the week. This is now after the fact that Jesus came in and all the people were shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Are we clear on that? They'd already shouted that. And then Matthew tells us, Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. But I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's future tense. They had already said it. Yeah, and Jesus says, that's great. They did say that. That partially ties into Psalm 118. But in the flow of the psalm, we're talking about something that's still future. You see, as we walk it through, with the overview of grace, we come into... uh, Gethsemane and Golgotha and Gabatha or Gabatha and then Golgotha and then the glory of God and that's the flow that's the direction and so when they say Hosanna when they say blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord this should speak of something future and it does 
Now the prophecy is speaking of Jesus and His second coming, His coming in His kingdom, just as the next verse does. Verse 27, The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Well, that's got to be the cross, right? Is it really? Derek Kidner thinks so. And I have great respect for Kidner. I've quoted him a lot in these Savior Psalms. Kidner says, In that week, when God's realities broke through His symbols and shadows, the horns of the altar became the arms of the cross, and the festival itself found fulfillment in Christ our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5.7 So the horns of the altar, Kidner says, that's, that's the cross. It's talking about the cross. Again, problem is, if we're following a flow through this psalm, it's out of order. That should have been shared earlier on when he was at Golgotha. But here it is at the end. And, and, Jesus, and it comes after, note, after Jesus said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not going to say that until... You won't see me until you say that the next time. And then after that, bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. Where is this going? Listen. The festival sacrifice of verse 27, bound to the horns of the altar, reveals, and I am confident of this, a reinstated sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom. Now, if you're hearing that for the first time, your reaction may be like mine was. What? Uh-uh. No, no. One time, once and for all. Jesus died once and for all, right? That was it. No more sacrifices. According to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, in the context of the millennial kingdom, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. That's the millennial temple. Isaiah says, in the millennial kingdom, at the temple... There will be sacrifices happening again. Burnt offerings? Sacrifices? Ezekiel chapter 44, in the context of the millennial kingdom, remember I told you, Ezekiel 40 through 47 lays out the plans of the millennial temple. Check this out. In the middle of that, Ezekiel 44 verse 11, yet they, speaking of the Levites, shall be my ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. So now it's not just Pastor Rick telling you, it's the Bible telling you there's going to be sacrificing going on in Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. Why? Jesus did it. Why would they start this thing over? Why, Lord? Because, because what was once the sacrifices of atonement for Israel will become sacrifices of remembrance for all people. In other words, it will be like communion. We take communion, and what do we do? As we share communion together, we look back to the cross, and then we look forward to His coming. It it, it reminds us of that sacrifice. It's a memorial. And I think the sacrifices in the kingdom will be the same way. More graphic. And no, we're not about to start doing sacrifices on a Sunday morning. But they'll be there. Why would they be there? Because, listen, people are going to be born. Children will be born in the kingdom. We talked about this recently. People will come into the kingdom, be born there, raised up in the kingdom, having never experienced planet Earth the way we see it now. 
knowing nothing of the way it was. Having a reinstated sacrificial system is not to atone for anybody because Jesus does that. But with every sacrifice is a graphic picture of the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us. We still have some teaching to do, folks. We're going to be part of that righteous government teaching people about Jesus and giving the explanation. And as the sacrifice takes place at the temple, they'll be able to look back and go, you think that's difficult to watch? You think that's overwhelming? That's what Jesus did. That's who Jesus is. That is what He paid with His own precious blood to purchase our eternal grace. And we've come full circle. Verse 28, You are my God and I give thanks to You. You are my God and I extol You. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His loving kindness is everlasting. And grace everlasting is the heart of the Savior Psalms. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. How awesome it is to consider that David, a thousand years before Jesus, walked the shores of the Galilee, the hills of Judea, long before He set foot on this planet. David was writing this down. And the entire procession, Lord Jesus, that You took going up to the altar of the cross and down into the depths of the earth and resurrected and ascended and all of that described in Your glory, Lord, in this psalm. I I just marvel. I read things like this, Lord, and I don't know how the world can't believe. I don't know how anyone can see this and not know, Lord, that You planned the whole thing and Jesus, You are the rock, the cornerstone, the firm foundation. Lord, thank You for that because... That being the case, though I may be in a tight spot from time to time, my foundation is sure. And my God is in a large place. And I would ask this night, Lord, that You remember Your people and that You would set us in a large place soon and very soon. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, as for myself tonight, that You will increase our thanksgiving and increase our trust. Help us to trust You with thankfulness and to thank You with trust in our hearts. Build up, oh, build up Your people. Bring comfort and strength until You come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.